you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join with me in prayer. Father, again, we turn um, our face, our hearts towards you. And we ask uh, for your word to be impressed upon our heart. We ask uh, that you would give us uh, is insight and wisdom, uh, that you would draw our attention to Jesus, and that you would help us to serve him faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let me start with a gut check. I don't know if you noticed that the, the title of the sermon has the word politic in it. And I'm curious when you saw that, maybe in the newsletter or this morning, how you responded to that idea. Oh, are we talking about politics from the pulpit this morning? If you're feeling maybe at least a hesitation or an internal kind of groan, I suspect you're not alone. I, I, I know that many people uh, feel like we're already overly hyper-politicized. Rightly so, I think there's that concern. And, and there's a political fatigue, and there can be a sense that sometimes that, that we can kind of be brought astray if we bring politics into the pulpit rather than recognizing what our task is supposed to be. But in my defense to that, let me just point out that we are a very political society. In fact, that is part of what it means to be human. To be human is to want to, or to need to, I would even say, work together with others. We, we can't work on our own. We, we, we can't farm and trade and protect ourselves. We are a society. And politics is simply just the discussion of how we as a society work together. It's, it's something we have to do. And so we need to think about how to do it Christianly. But there's another side to, I think, the objection that, that some might have about this kind of connection on a Sunday morning. And that is not so much that we need to kind of get politics out of Christianity, but there are some who would say we need to get Christianity out of politics. There needs to be a, a separation of church and state. There needs to be religion kind of kept to the private, and, and the public and the politics needs to be kind of non-religious in any way. And that actually, I think, is a, a more problematic position. Ultimately, I think if we understand things rightly, that position is just kind of living in denial of reality. Because to hold that position actually overlooks the single most important political fact that defines the way things are today. And by that, I'm not talking about what's going to happen in the, in the primaries or in the presidential election. I'm not even talking about the nature of the Supreme Court. The single most defining political reality that shapes everything else is this, that Jesus is king. I realize even as I'm beginning to say that, it might seem like I've just kind of done this, this change in topic. Kind of like, you know, the, the, the really cheesy evangelism where there's like this Jesus juke. You like politics. Let me tell you the great politician. It seems maybe like I'm talking about something else, but, but you need to recognize that the gospel is inherently political. So when, when Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. He's talking about a government. When Paul is summarizing the gospel, how does he summarize the gospel? Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a political position. The gospel tells us that Jesus is king. And by that, it's not just saying that Jesus is, is the king of religion or Jesus is the spiritual king. No, it is saying Jesus is the king of this world. That is the political reality. From the time of Adam till the time of the cross, there was kind of this, you might call it political movement, political rebellion, this, this quest to maintain kind of this independent self-governing of humanity. It was demonic. Underlying it was the work of Satan. But it is what drove empires from the Tower of Babel to Babylon to Rome. It was this project of we can do it on our own and take control. And Jesus, when he goes to the cross, says, Now is the time for judgment. Now is the ruler of this world to be removed. He was saying that going to the cross was going to dethrone the one who was in charge. 
And when Jesus dies and conquers Satan and rises again, what is the message that he gives to his disciples? All authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the one who is in charge. I am king. That's what the resurrection is about. And what does he tell his disciples to do? You need to now tell everyone else that I'm the king and give them an opportunity to surrender and to join my kingdom. You can initiate them through baptism and teach them how to be my followers because I am the king. We, you might say, are in a time of amnesty. We are in a time where our king still is leaving it to the word to be spread so that the world might come to know who their king actually is, so that people have an opportunity to come under his rule. In in this time of amnesty where, where Jesus is not coming in his full reign yet, there is still a role for human governments, but it's a limited role. When it, when, when human rulers come to recognize that Jesus actually is the king, what they should recognize is really their job is just essentially to babysit. Human governments are, are meant to babysit, to keep things orderly and peaceful so that the news about who their king actually is can spread effectively. It's a time of amnesty now, but there is a time, we are told in Philippians, where every knee shall bow, meaning surrender to the one who is true ruler. Every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus is Lord, that he is the king. In church, that is the defining political reality that should orient everything else. Now, I realize that even as, as much as I can say this passionately and vehemently, there is kind of this, this sense of dissonance because that's just not how it feels. You look around, you don't go, yeah, I see Jesus is king everywhere I look. But the fact that people don't recognize a truth doesn't make it any less true. I came across this week a story of um, a man by the name of Hiro Onoda. Maybe you're familiar with it. He was a World War II soldier, Japanese soldier. And in, uh, I think it was either late 1994, 1944 or early 1945, he was commissioned in an island of the Philippines. And while much of the Japanese army was retreating from that island, he was told to stay and engage in guerrilla warfare tactics to try to mess up the supply lines as the allies were there, to try to continue to make things economically difficult. And he was told, no matter what, do not surrender until we return. Six months later, the Empire of Japan surrenders. But Hiro doesn't know this. A few months later, leaflets are dropped. He and a few other people are hanging out in the jungle in the Philippines, occasionally emerging to kind of, you know, destroy farms, steal food, sometimes kill some of the farmers, because that was what their job was. And, and leaflets come down that says, Japan has surrendered, and they see the leaflets, and Hiro, who was trained in counterintelligence, assumed that this was just a hoax to try to get them to come out. So he kept fighting. A few years later, 1952, more leaflets are dropped, this time with pictures of his family and words from his family saying, really, it's over. And yet he keeps fighting on, fighting, fighting for an empire that is at that point no longer existing. And it doesn't stop in 1952. For two more decades, He continues to fight World War II long after its loss, to continue to fight for an empire that doesn't even exist any longer. 
It's only when his commanding officer, the person who told him never to surrender until he gets more orders, came back to him in 1972 that he eventually stepped down and returned to Japan. Now, I can imagine, I mean, that, that's, that's a crazy story, but imagine actually an entire island that would be like that, like Hiro. Imagine a group of the Japanese military kind of in this out-of-the-way, nowhere island, this small town, and, and they, that town is holding out, and they get occasional news after Japan has surrendered that they hear from the radio, Japan has surrendered, they assume it's a fake. Maybe some leaflets are dropped, but this town holds on. They're still going to be allied, and they're going to fight for the Japanese empire. People are brought to them, come via boat, and say, look, you need to understand, the Japanese empire is no more, and they'll imprison them because, of course, these are spies. If you have a situation like that, and if you are one of the few people in that town who actually believe that Japan has already been conquered, it will seem nuts in that moment when you're surrounded by everyone else, and yet it would be no less true. And, and that's the situation that we find ourselves in. We have a king, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the fact that so many people don't understand that doesn't make that king any less the king of this world. It doesn't make Satan any less conquered at this point. And what that does actually is it starts giving us, I think, a perspective on what, what we, what a church is. A church is not a club, it's not a class, it's not a weekly activity. In a, in a real sense, a church is a political entity. We are, we are right now living in communities where people don't recognize who their ruler is. And when we come together, we are like that subset of community that seeks to live out the reality. We are a group of people who seek to be within our towns, the people who say Jesus is our king, and we are going to seek to live accordingly, recognize he is the one that we have allegiance to. That's, that's in some ways the very essence of what the church is, a political entity whose primary goal is to be a community that lives out the rule of Jesus. So what does that look like? How are we supposed to do that? This, I would say, is yet another reason why it is useful for us to, to be looking at Deuteronomy. Because in the Old Testament, you might say Israel was kind of a prototype. They were a first step, you could say, of, of God's rule being experienced on earth. That was, in some ways, their fundamental constitution. They were a people who were organized around the idea that God is their king. They are, as you might say in modern way, a theocracy. When, when they're brought out of Egypt, they're brought to Mount Sinai, there is this agreement made between God and them in the form of a covenant where God says, I will be your ruler and you will be my people. And from that moment on, they seek to live out this reality of being a nation ruled by the God of the universe. And so, as we are trying to understand what does it mean for us to be this, this people who gather together to seek to live out a different political reality than the world around us sees, what does it mean to be a people who are oriented towards King Jesus, we can look here and begin to see what that is supposed to look like. In different ways, of course, we're not the Old Testament people. We're New Testament people. But we can look and see some key ways if this is how we are to live out our political identity as those who recognize who our king is. 
And this morning, I, I want us to just notice two things. There's, there's a lot in our passage that we could talk about, but we're going to just focus on two aspects to living out this political reality of having Jesus as our king. And we're going to focus on the ideas of, of responsibility and righteousness. So first, as we're looking at this passage, I want to think about the question of responsibility. And in some ways, I want to pull back and even just like raise a question. Like, what does it look like to be a theocracy? I don't know if this question ever even occurred to you, but if you have the idea of a nation ruled by God, how does that work logistically? That, that I think, is what, what chapters 16 through 18 are about in Deuteronomy. It's, it's dealing with the logistics. And we might ask, if, if God is in control and people are supposed to submit... Does that happen primarily individually? Is it that God sends out his covenant, sends out the law of Moses, and every person is supposed to read it on their own, observe it on their own, maybe in their household? Or on the other hand, if, if God is seeking to rule over the nation, does he just kind of choose one specific figure? We could say Jerusalem is kind of headquarters, this centralized organization that's supposed to kind of send out instructions, but it all begins there. Is that how a theocracy is supposed to work? Well, what we see here is that, that neither is the case. God, on one hand, he will, we'll see this next week when Nick preaches, he on one hand allows for a king, but the king is supposed to be a very kind of small figure compared to the way the other nations are. It is a very decentralized organization where we see that the power is given to each local community. And yet, on the other hand, it is not just kind of this individualistic thing where each person is supposed to just kind of be responsible for themselves. What we see here is that each local community is collectively responsible for the entire community to be serving their God faithfully. So if you, if you look at our passage, just kind of a couple things to, to notice. So in, at the very beginning, it says, you shall appoint judges. That's talking to the cities. Each city you to appoint elders who are going to kind of judge over your affairs from your town. And then if you keep going, it doesn't say to the judges, it's talking to the town. You shall not pervert justice. You shall make sure that there aren't bribes. You shall make sure that there is the adequate situation so that the judges can judge wisely. There is this collective responsibility. And, and when you continue further in, in chapter 17, we see that it is the town that is supposed to recognize when people are transgressing the covenant and turning to idolatry. And as even the town, once the conclusion is made that a person has done that is worthy of the death penalty, the entire town is supposed to come out and prosecute that individual. The, the point is, is that everyone is responsible. Everyone collectively is to seek to live out the reality that their God is in charge. Do you see how, how, how God does this? On one hand, if it's, if it's just about the king, then the people are powerless and they can't do anything. On the other hand, if it's just everyone individually, then no one has any kind of focus on each other. But to say, you as a community, though you who know each other, who live within the same gates, you are responsible for each other. There is this collective responsibility that is part of living out God's rule. And I would suggest that that is exactly how we are meant to be today, as we are seeking to live out Jesus' rule, that we have a responsibility for each other. I think this is something that is oftentimes lost in maybe particularly American Christianity. When we think about the idea of Jesus as our king, we almost immediately move to the individual, that it's up to me, that I have to make sure that I'm living faithfully to Jesus 
And that's the only thing I really have responsibility for, or maybe me and my family. But God calls us to more than that. On the other hand, because instinctively we realize that we need to figure out a way to work together. In general, American Christianity seems to be very interested in politics, but the politics that we focus on almost always ends up being about the central location, which is one of those things that gives us almost no agency whatsoever. We can just talk about it, we can think about it, we can make a little vote, but there's very little we can do. And God is moving us towards something closer. He's saying we need to look at each other. Our responsibility is that we, the community that God has placed us in, care for each other and help each other to live out the reign of Jesus. This is why in the New Testament, you really can't go through, I think, any letter of the New Testament where you know, Paul or John or Peter are writing to churches where they're not saying, you need to encourage each other. You need to help each other. You need to exhort each other so that collectively you can be a community that's living out the rule of Jesus. This is also why you have moments where there's this need, it's saying, for you as a community to warn. If someone is turning away from Jesus, you need to warn them. And at times, if it is persistent and unrepentant, you need to warn them in the form of removing them through excommunication, always with a desire that they repent and return. But there is this collective responsibility. We need to look around and say, are we a community that is following Jesus faithfully and if not, how can we grow in that? How can we help each other to grow in that? We have a responsibility for each other. And we have a responsibility even beyond just the people that are represented in this room. Because God has located us in communities that are largely unaware of who their king actually is. And he's given us the task of making that kingship known. Evangelism oftentimes can feel so weak because I think oftentimes we feel like we're asking someone to do us a favor or maybe we're trying to offer a product and we're seeing if they can make the purchase. That is not what is going on. What is going on is we are declaring a king who is victorious and inviting people to enter into the winning side and surrender from the rebellion. It is a longing, but it is from a place of strength, not weakness. We have a responsibility that's one of the things that we see when we see the way that God's rule works. The second thing that we see is around the theme of righteousness. We, we've been talking about kind of pursuing the rule of Jesus. But what is it that we are supposed to pursue? What is it that matters to, to Jesus as he's ruling over us? Well, again, we see a very clear cue when we look at the way that God rules over Israel. So... There's this word that's just repeated, even though it's, I mean, it's a little confusing in the English because sometimes it's translated here justice, sometimes it's uh, translated righteousness, but it's the same word. So you notice that when judges are being appointed, they have a specific job. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Or verse 19, where it talks about that you need to make sure that you do not subvert or, uh, the cause of the righteous. And then verse 20 Literally, it's righteousness, righteousness, you shall pursue. So any political entity, any organization, there's always something that's kind of guiding their decision. If you think about a governor or a president or, or any legislator, they're trying to think about how do we kind of move towards something. We might say that right now, as people are looking at the recession, they're like, how do we move towards economic security? 
Or other times the discussion might be, how do we move towards greater freedom for individuals? But really, neither of those are what we most want as a society, right? We, we want a society that's, that's good. We want a society that's free from shootings, from teen suicide, from police brutality, from, from dissension. We, we want a society that lives in harmony and, and flourishes. Isaiah speaks of this, you know, from the perspective of Isaiah, this future time where there will be a kingdom where, where those who are poor and, and lowly will be treated with respect, where justice will reign, where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. That, whether, whether people are actually naming it as such, that is what we are longing for. And the word for that in the Bible is righteousness. Righteousness is not just this kind of individual quality of doing things right. It's bigger than that. It's, it's about community. It's about all of life. Righteousness, most simply defined, is the world being the way it was meant to be under God. And we see here that God, when he instructs these communities, each town, as you're making decisions, as the judges are judging, pursue righteousness. That's your calling. If we continue on to chapter 17, we'll see different, in two different ways where pursuing righteousness means remove evil. Seek, seek to get rid of those things that stand in the way of righteousness because righteousness cannot exist at the very same time that you have cruelty, abuse, injustice. But again and again, the true north, what orients all of the decisions politically that they are seeking to make under God's rule is they are pursuing righteousness. Always trying to move towards it. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, you realize that is, that is, that's not what ends up happening, right? Um, Deuteronomy itself will say, you are not going to do it. You are going to fail. There, there's, on one hand, there's these perfect laws, the laws of righteousness as they're described in Deuteronomy 4 that, that bring righteousness, but, but the people of God, each of these communities that are supposed to be living out God's rule, there is still this rebellion that goes so deep. There's resistance that's so strong that, that the people of Israel fail, fail to move into that place of righteousness. And if you think about it, that is probably not surprising because that seems to be really the failing of every human government. There's no human government that has the capacity to move people into righteousness, is there? I mean, let me just kind of thought experiment. Can you imagine, no matter who is elected next year, whatever the president, whatever the Congress, is there a situation that you can imagine that that government will suddenly make our nation righteous and flourish and harmonious without any dissension. Now we know better than that. A human government cannot do that. Except, well, except one human government can do that, right? Because that's what we've been saying. Jesus, the one who is both the Son of God and Son of Man, he has reigned in a different way. When he went to the cross, he brought the death blow to sin and to evil. And when he, he rose again, 
He, he gave power to all those who submit to him. The, the scripture tells us that whenever we surrender, whenever we turn from our way of avoiding God and repent and accept the rule of Jesus, we are given the power of the Spirit. And that power of the Spirit is the power of righteousness. Which means under the rule of Jesus, righteousness does come, not just individually, but it breaks in, in these different little places that are recognizing the rule of Jesus called churches. In churches, we see the rule of Jesus making things righteous, not just making us right before God, although that is true, but actually changing us. Which I realize might seem like a controversial claim to some degree. To say that churches are places that we begin to see righteousness breaking forth. Because we know so many bad stories about what has taken place in churches in the name of Christ that are so terrible of, of abuse and, and corruption and hypocrisy. And the stories are terrible and, and so many of them are true. And so I don't want to trivialize that in any way, but I do want to suggest that that actually is not the surprising detail in the story if we look at things more broadly. There's a little sense of kind of noticing that is, is, is kind of perhaps like walking through a cancer ward and commenting that clearly this is a bad hospital because everybody is so sick. See, the church is an assembly of sinful people, like by definition. And like every group of sinful people, sinful things take place. We can look everywhere. We can look at educational institutions. We can look in the press. We can look in Hollywood. We can look in the military. We can look in the government. And, and in every single one of those spheres, we will see corruption and abuse and hypocrisy. It's not a church thing. Tragically, it is a human thing. It is the nature of human sinfulness, and so it shouldn't shock us that we see it in the church. But what does surprise, if we are looking carefully, is that we also see something else. We see the very sick cancer patients getting better. We see righteousness beginning to emerge in these political communities that live under the reign of Jesus. We've mentioned this before, but there's this book by Tom Holland that, 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 that points to the fact that if you go like 2,000 years ago, Rome and Roman society is just drastically different from the way society is today. If you are strong, if you are powerful, if you are rich, you could do whatever you want with whomever you want, using whomever you want, whether that is slaves or for sex or whatever. And if you were women or you were poor or you were weak, you were just out of luck. You were not treated as human beings. That's the way it works. The mighty can do what they want and the weak have to suffer. And that's reality. And, and, and Tom Holland raises the question, so why, why are things so different? Tom Holland, who is not a believer, he's, to my understanding, an atheist. And the only answer that he can give is there is something about Christianity that has shaped society so that we have a different way of doing things now. And if you trace the story, it's not the story of some emperor suddenly telling everybody, you need to treat everyone with dignity. You need to treat women differently. You need to treat slaves differently. No. If, if you want to understand the story of what happened, it's all of these little communities under the rule of Jesus, hearing Jesus say, you need to treat the least of these. 
All of these little communities hearing Jesus say and, and having to obey, even though it doesn't make sense to them at first, to treat each person with dignity, to treat slaves and wealthy alike, to treat men and women alike, to recognize each of them bear the image of God. And as these little communities learn to, to, to live under Jesus' reign by the power of the Spirit and even invite other people into it, over time, an entire society changes. And over time, the world changes. Because the rule of Jesus brings righteousness. And what I would like to suggest is that this is what needs to be our political vision. It is so easy, I think, to look around us in our society and feel hopeless because there are so many things that we see wrong. And in our hopelessness, at sometimes I think we just kind of like want to wash our hands and kind of remove ourselves and just say a pox upon both houses. But God, I think, doesn't call us to that. He calls us to something different. On the other hand, when we see these things going on, we want to get involved, we want to take charge, we want to find a way to make those in power fix things. And I would suggest to you that while there is a place for Christians in government, and we can talk about that another time, that is not our primary goal. It's not our primary role because it is not our primary political reality. Our primary political reality is that Jesus is the king and that he is the one who can change things. And so the way that we live that out politically is here, together, figuring out how we can pursue righteousness in the power of the Spirit, seeking to invite other people into it, seeking to allow Jesus to do His work because He's the one who can change things, even as we call out to others saying the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our calling. 